We're here. We're live. It's the brand new Mike podcast. I've got Lauren Trahan of the NOIS. Is that how I say it? Is there a catchier way to say that? We usually say the noise. I know it doesn't have the E, but. Is that in homage to Illinois by chance? No. So it's actually more geared towards something super nerdy, which is section number 115 of copyright law, which has to do with mechanical licenses. Oh, wow. Can, so what, can you break that down? What is a mechanical license and how is the name related? Yeah, of course. So our company is a music publishing administration company and we collect music royalties. That particular section of the law has to do with something called a compulsory license, which is basically when you cover someone else's song, if you do a straight ahead cover, you don't change the lyrics or the melodies or anything, they are required to license that song to you. So Mm. it's basically an automatic license that happens that has to do with a large portion of the mechanical royalties that songwriters can collect. Okay, very cool. And just to reiterate, Lauren is the Vice President of Marketing at The Noise, and NOIS stands for the National Organization of Independent Songwriters. I love the sound of that because it sounds a lot like a collective of sorts, and, and, and I love that. You're an expert in music publishing. I would love to kind of take a hit the rewind button and hear about what got you into the world of the music industry, the entertainment creative economy. When did the music bug bite you and how did you find yourself in this uh, company? Yeah, of course. I have played music as long as I can remember since I was a little kid. So I've played, I've been a bass player for a very long time as a primary instrument and growing up in high school bands and stuff, I just tended to be the most organized person in the group and advancing shows and making sure everybody showed up on time and ultimately decided to go into artist management from there and went to school at UT Austin for marketing and music business and ended up getting a day-to-day management job fresh from college. Since I was really young, I knew that I wanted to work in the music industry and was just willing to do whatever it took to get there. Absolutely. And you said UT Austin? Yes. Yeah. So where did you grow up? Where did you first uh, get introduced to the music uh, scene? Yeah. So I actually grew up north of Chicago in a suburb up there. So when I was playing bass, I was playing in like pop punk bands and hardcore bands. The metal scene was really cool in Chicago around that time. And uh, yeah, that's what ignited my passion for music. I actually... I feel like this is how almost every bass player gets started in bass. I was a guitarist and then my friends wanted to start a band and they said, we already have two guitarists. So mm. what else would you want to do? And I was, well, I have a bass laying around and it's got a similar tuning. It's almost the same. I'll, I guess I'll play bass. And then I never looked back. <laughs> Very cool. And once you find the pocket, you got to live there. I always used to think that cats in a rhythm section, the bassist, the drummer, that they always move their body and their head in this like almost walk like an Egyptian motion that I couldn't ever really attach to how I would dance to it. I'm like going, <laughs> what are they even hearing? What are they even moving to? And once I started learning bass and started learning some of the rhythm section stuff, I started moving like that. And I remember one time I was grooving to it, doing that walk like an Egyptian sort of bassist head bob. And I go, I found the pocket. I found the pocket. <laughs> I'm so excited. Very cool. I think bass is super cool. That it's just like the most laid back, fun instrument that brings a new level of cool. And usually the bassist does come equipped with other skill sets because they typically, in my experience, the bassist is either the gear expert or the pedal nerd or maybe the manager or the booking agent of the band. So it sounds like you started wearing a lot of different hats. And then how did you find yourself in the world of music publishing? Yeah, my career really started in artist management out of college, and I was doing that for a long time, the day-to-day management for bigger acts, picked up some bands of my own, and the one area, whether it was the large acts I was working with or the small ones that people didn't really seem to understand was music publishing. It fell on me to do this grunt admin work Mm. for these clients of mine, and in doing that, 
I ended up becoming an expert in the space in a way that not a lot of people take the time to learn it. Now I'm on this mission to try and educate independent artists on the different facets of music publishing. It's a complicated space in the music industry, but I think you would relate to this and what you do with the Artist Collective. It's so important to have at least a base knowledge mm -hmm. so that you know where to start. Right. Right. Even if you ultimately end up hiring help in whatever regard, whether it's consulting or getting a label or a manager or whatever else, it's hard if you don't even know the right questions to ask to make sure you're really covered and going in the right direction for your career. I completely agree with that. And so for the intro level artists, let's say somebody just decided they put together the band, they found that bassist that used to be a guitarist that wears many hats. And then they say, I want to start recording in a studio. I don't know the first thing about music publishing. What is music publishing 101? What's the first thing they need to know or the first task they need to do? So I think the very first thing that people need to know is that when you write a song and then record the song, there are two different copyrights. So there's a copyright for the song itself, for the lyrics and the melody. And then there is a copyright for the sound recording. Hmm. So usually there's one copyright for the song. That's it. That's the one copyright. That's all that's ever going to exist for it. And there can be many copyrights for sound recordings because there can be many sound recordings of mm. that song. So, so this is, is that similar to the Taylor Swift story where she owned her composition, but she didn't own the actual sound recording that went on her album? Yeah, that's exactly right. So okay. Taylor owns the publishing for her songs, but she didn't own the sound, the original sound recordings for that album. And oh, so... Okay she re-recorded all of her own songs. She covered her own songs. <laughs> Those compulsory mechanical licenses. So Scooter Braun had to allow her to do that, to cover her own songs, to pay herself for those. And yeah, she's able to now collect all of the revenue from those new sound recordings. Very cool. So uh, during your time in the trenches, gaining this new skill set, when you took it back to the band, uh, were they stoked about, oh, we got to sign this contract and do this split? I know that usually when I have those conversations about music publishing, a lot of people just hear white noise or they hear the Snoopy. How did the band receive those conversations and how have you finessed those conversations into, into maybe artist worlds that were reluctant to even hear it? Yeah, it's usually I start by talking about different styles of splits for songs because I feel like this is where people get hung up when they go into a studio to collaborate with people especially if you have a band for some of them it's really easy I was in a band where one person wrote all of the songs mm -hmm. and we just played the parts they wrote all the parts real easy they own those songs were hired guns there are other bands where everybody wants equal splits even the drummer <laughs> oh wow or everybody's contributing in different ways so it's uncomfortable, I think, for people to talk about money or to talk about splits and ownership of these songs. So I try and say, if you can have the conversation as early as possible in the process, then it makes it a lot easier. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, almost having the system understood before you ever walk in the studio, because it seems to me like yeah. that's where a lot of people go wrong is that they try to have the conversations after the fact or after success hits. And yeah. the whole conversation is wildly different when there's dollar signs attached to it. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, there's a couple of common pitfalls. Like people don't know if the producer is recording for you that technically they own that sound recording until they've signed a producer agreement. Whoa. So if you don't, if you don't have something like that in place or you don't have it, even just having a text message that is, I'm paying you, this is work for hire. Even if you don't have a formal written agreement out mm -hmm. will help because if you put out that song and it blows up, that person then has a ton of leverage hmm. to get more money out of you or more of a share out of you. So you're right, like having the conversation as early as possible is so important. Absolutely. So, I always try and encourage people to have the conversation before they go into the studio. It doesn't always work that way, but like New York style, usually you split and, you know, coming from hip hop mm -hmm. culture, lyrics and melody or top line is 50% of the song. 
of the composition and then the track is 50% of the song. Oh, wow. So that's the style for New York. For Nashville, whoever is in the room gets an equal split, regardless mm. of what they ultimately contribute to the song. So if you got 10 people in the room, everybody gets 10%. If you got two people in, it's 50-50. Or bringing your partners in the studio, suddenly they're co-writers. <laughs> yep, yep. But it's hard to say, right? Like maybe their energy or a joke they made inspired a lyric that ended up in the song. And that's sort of... I love how the Nashville guys work because they get this whole band together and they just jam. It was, right. It's all pretty natural how it happens. So it makes sense for that style. And then LA style is, oh, I had a horn player play this part that they wrote. They get 11.7% of this song. Mm. <laughs> it's very down to what's actually contributed in the song. So as much as possible, if you can decide beforehand what style you're going to go with or what the general framework right they're going to be it helps a lot with having those conversations later now i love how it's divided into new york nashville and la because that's pretty much the way i divide the country right mm -hmm. it's and being in florida we pretty much inherit everybody that retires from new york so i would say down here but there's a lot of la cats out here too uh do you have a personal preference do you prefer nashville over the other two types for, so for hip hop in particular, the New York style makes the absolute most sense. If you have five people work on a track, they each get 10% because that's worth 50% of the song. And then mm. the rapper or the vocalist or whoever else is splitting up the top line half. To me, that makes the most sense. Both of them, both of those parts of a hip hop song are equally important. Um, I, I like the Nashville style too, where it's more equal splits because it's something that you can decide beforehand. And then there's no sort of contention. Nobody's withholding anything. They know right. that whatever they contribute is going to be equally valued. Mm. Um, yeah, because if they come up with some golden riff that can be the next number one hit and, right. and they're not on the split, why would they be incentivized to share that gold during the session? Yeah, so those are, are my personal preferences. And it also comes from like the styles of music that I work in, but to each their own. I feel like there's no <laughs> wrong way to go about it. So wherever yeah. you and your collaborators feel the happiest is where you should go. I agree. And it's funny that you mentioned the LA format because I actually have an LA producer client Two of them right now, actually. No, one's New York, one's LA. So that's actually really interesting. Let's see. How do we do his sync split? I think, okay, so I think that it was all one artist on one and then it was collaborative artists on the LA. So we've got an LA artist right now. And with him being the producer, the way that he assembles the song is very much in an LA format, right? Because you take this collaborator here, you put this puzzle piece in here, you have this horn player from here, you have this guest vocalist from Sound Better. And suddenly, because you're the producer, and I've tried to express this to him, the acquisition cost of each puzzle piece and your overall profit margin, if you're really good at acquiring the puzzle pieces at a low acquisition cost, Suddenly you're DJ Khaled. Dude's got no talent and this guy's got talent. So it's, he's got even more ability, but DJ Khaled's got virtually no talent other than stacking a song in the right way, bringing the puzzle pieces together and then pumping enough money in it to make it successful. Am I wrong there? Is that not his format or a really common LA format for DJ producers? Yeah, I would say so. And I think of course it also depends on your name, right? As you grow, as, as a household name, you can command more like higher fees, lower percentages from collaborators mm -hmm. and all those different kinds of things. But it also brings up an interesting point to come back to the difference between the copyright for publishing and the copyright for the sound recording. Most of the time producers get producer points on an album and those are referencing the master sound recording. Mm. So if you're going into the studio with a producer, it's definitely important to clarify if they are expecting to own a portion of the actual song or if they are just expecting points on the master. I because see. some producers, if they're contributing, if they're actually putting the puzzle pieces together or constructing, arranging an entire song, could definitely be argued that songwriter, songwriting 
and then they would own the publishing. But there's also producers where maybe you come in with a full song, you have all of the chords, all of the structure, the melody, the lyrics, and they're mostly recording and maybe adding in some additional elements in the background. That one might not justify a publishing credit or a portion of the publishing. So definitely something to be mindful of. Absolutely. And I think that I would say nine times out of 10, people overpay for studio time. And one of the easiest ways that I have seen people create bartership relationships with studios or engineers and start to build a relationship with them might be rather than offering them a monetary amount for a day rate or their typical hourly rate, sometimes they offer more on the points end. Is that Mm -hmm. something you recommend? And what are some of the pros and cons of involving higher points versus less pay? Yeah, so a lot of producers will take the, because you you never know how the song is gonna do. So if you offer them the increase in percentage and they have a little more skin in the game, they might help promote it a little bit more if there's something they're really proud of and want their name on also. But the flip side of that really comes in when it comes to sync licensing. So, At a basic level, for anyone listening who might not know, sync licenses are a flat fee that is paid to both the master side and the publishing side of a song and a sound recording in order to put it in a visual work. So like a movie or an advertisement or whatever else. And you have to clear or get approval from every single collaborator, anybody Mm. who owns a piece of the sound recording and the publishing. Okay. So sometimes it's nice to do things work for hire and own it outright, because then as you go to do sync licenses or remixes or covers, you have more control. You're the only person who has to approve stuff, all those different kinds of things. But if it's a good relationship and you really wanna build with that person, you're gonna work with them again, you want it to be a longer term relationship, definitely, definitely a great option and a great way to build that relationship going forward. And I think it comes down to setting the expectations of once this product is done, are you going to be the absentee father or are you going to raise this baby with me? You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Uh, And so I think that so many people believe that the magic of the creation and the magic of the music in this discovery together As the artist coming in the studio, especially me being a novice artist, I'm looking at the engineer going, we just made the greatest thing of my whole life. And to them, they're like, oh, I do this six days a week. Mm -hmm. So I remember early in my career getting a little offended that I couldn't have him adjust the hourly rate or day rate on a dollar amount for the points. He didn't want additional points. Mm-hmm. but it was a lot looking back. It was like, I didn't have the following. I hadn't been on TV yet. I hadn't been on tour multiple times. He was working with artists that had awards that had tours that were on labels. And even those cats, he wasn't taking higher points for less pay. So you got to know the philosophy of the cats that you're working with. Some people just want a payday and go and live their own life. But if you've got somebody that's trying to be the next Cato, the producer, or trying to be the next DJ Khaled, and you can set the expectations of what the next six months past the release are, then you can justify those points you gifted them on saying, hey, you're going to slap your name on it. It's going on your socials. You're going to use your newsletter to promote this and have those expectations in place rather than just hit and record, hoping they love it as much as you and that they can fit your single promotion in their busy schedule. I mean, I think that lack of communication on the front end is where I went wrong. And I obviously had some newbie artist expectations and it's my first debut album and I'm enthralled in the whole studio process. But do you think that artists should be offended or have any emotional attachment to whether the producer wants higher points or regular pay? It's the same as so many facets of the industry where everything is just negotiable. So you have to recognize that these professionals are most likely freelancers, or maybe even if they have a team around them, that they already have a sort of set rate sheet or a way that they like 
doing things, it, right. especially if they're an established producer. I think with newer producers who, like you said, have that vision for themselves of becoming the next Cato the producer or like Metro Boomin or right. whatever else, that you can get away with more with splits rather than fees as people build portfolios. But no, don't be offended. It's somebody trying to, you have to recognize the role of the producer, right? They're, they're there to help your vision come to life. And that is their job. And that's mm-hmm. what they are doing for you. And just because they aren't as excited as you about your own baby, doesn't mean that it's an ugly baby how about that (laughs) (laughs) way to tie a bow on the analogy i like that (laughs) so going into your current negotiations now doing what you do is do you try to do you lean towards the methodology of higher points less dollar pay or are at this point in your career and with your clients do you just recommend hey pay the pimp and then we'll do everything on the back end ourselves like we're not going to depend on these cats Yeah, I'll tie this into what we're doing at the music publishing company. I'm just a really staunch advocate for independent artists and remaining independent as possible. Everybody needs support at some point, but there's not a lot that labels or publishers who take ownership of your copyrights can do for you that's different than people who won't. So for, Mm. for working with producers, it can just come down to budget, but if you can afford it, buy it every time, easy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and people forget, you can take out a PayPal credit loan. You can go to a firm, you can go to Ally, you can take out a personal loan for these types of things. If you truly do believe that it's going to be profitable, there's no need to reach into the negotiation table of your recording or even reach into the pocket of a label necessarily. You're just borrowing money to make your business successful, just happen to be in the business of making music. So I feel like one of the biggest hurdles that I have as uh, COO of Artist Collective and just pushing this independence motion is this misconception that artists are going to be buying yachts and paying their rent with royalties. And Mm. I feel like that's a misconception across the map that they feel like the majority of their career is going to be funded by that one word royalty. Can you walk Mm -hmm. us through what a royalty is and some of the hoops that money has to do before it ever reaches us? Yeah, absolutely. So a royalty is a very tiny minuscule payment that is made either for the public performance or the duplication of your copyright. Most people think if they just upload their song to DistroKid and get paid through it, that they're covered, they're collecting all of their royalties, but Mm. that's not true. What DistroKid is paying you is just one of four. And it's something called artist royalties, which is every single time the sound recording is duplicated. You get paid a royalty from streaming services. If you have printed CDs, anytime that digital file is copied, you get a teeny tiny royalty. I think most people are familiar that those royalties are fractions of pennies. So even if you get something like a million streams, that's not really something that you can live on long-term. doesn't hurt, but definitely, Definitely can add up. Now, you say it's this tiny fraction of a cent and with streaming. Yeah, for sure. It's definitely like that. But what is the difference between a royalty? And if I sell my single on CD, what is the difference? Where does that money go on an iTunes purchase, as opposed to if I'm just selling a digital file on my website, let's say? Yeah, if you have your digital files listed anywhere, like even Bandcamp, for example, which I would say arguably has some of the best fees as far as that goes, Mm -hmm. there's almost always some sort of payment processing fee or overhead for those companies that you're giving a cut to. If I go and buy an album on Bandcamp and it's $10, $9 is going to the artist. Whereas if I stream that artist on Spotify, the royalty is something that Spotify is paying the artist for the right to duplicate the digital file. So I would have to stream that same album. I don't even know how many times, maybe a million times, a hundred, hundreds of thousands of times 
for that artist to get those nine dollars yeah and and so that's why and and so that's one of the reasons why it's so much uh, smaller of an income share is because it's got to go through and correct me if i'm wrong it's got to go through the pro and even through cd baby they're still going through a pro correct yeah so DistroKid is paying you the artist royalties spotify all of the digital service providers apple music etc pay DistroKid that royalty hmm. The royalty you're talking about with PROs or performing rights organizations is for the public performance of the composition copyright. And so that is your ASCAP, your BMI, CSAC, PRS in the UK, SOCAN in Canada. Every territory that pays public performance royalties has their own PRO. So this is maybe like the second thing where when people want to talk about music publishing, the absolute first thing they have to do to collect their publishing royalties is register with the PRO in their territory. Mm. Because you get something called an IPI number or a CAE number, which is just an international unique number to you. And you cannot collect your publishing royalties without it. And the and only that's way to you your artist account that's attached to you as an artist or per project? Attached to you as a songwriter. So mm. you just sign up with your actual name as a songwriter because you might work on many projects right so you don't want to sign up with just your artist name i would use your actual name and then you get that ipi number it's like a social security number for a songwriter gotcha now that's one of the most curious things i i have and we'll get to this a little bit later Mm -hmm. are the differences between those regions and how to branch into an international market i think that's Mm -hmm. a that could be an entire conversation in and of itself Oh yeah. But one thing I want to pivot into is that you mentioned in our previous communication that one topic that's really hot right now seems to be selling entire catalogs uh, and cataloging uh, music and then selling that for a bulk rate. That seems to be (laughs) early retirement for a lot of top level artists right now. Can you walk through why that's popular right now in this moment in time? and what that process is? Hypnosis is probably the most name recognition or the easily most easily recognized name for these funds that are currently buying up catalogs. And they're building them up. They're buying at something crazy, like 16 times multiples, which means that like whatever revenue that catalogs earns in a year, they're multiplying it by 16 and then paying that to the artist. So it's, yeah, it's really crazy right now, really popular. This is my own personal opinion. These companies, the publishing industry is really ripe for innovation right now. It is based purely on metadata and tracking that metadata. And internationally, territories have different systems for how they do that. And that's part of why it's so important that you include as much information in your metadata as possible, because you want to make sure that it works in every territory. And you know, some- I'm going to hit pause for just a moment. Yeah. Metadata, for those who may not know, or, or when you submit a song, you submit every descriptor, every tag, every sort of atmospheric scenario that you could imagine. What instrumentation are in there? What vibes? What emotion? What genres and subgenres? You attach all of this metadata to the song during submission so that it theoretically can be found by people to sync it and to use it for various sources, essentially adding hashtags to an Instagram post, but much more in depth. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. And it also has details like the release date, the label, the artist name, the title, all of the musicians who are on the track, the song lyrics, contact Mm. information. You can put a lot into metadata and it is important for that to be as complete as possible because it's also how you get paid all of your royalties, all of them. It's super important. And like some territories track based on the title of the song and the artist name and other territories, you have to have the ISRC code, which is the code that's assigned to the sound recording when it's distributed. So again, it's just important to make sure that it's as complete as possible. So there's this really interesting article that came back, came out to circle back to hypnosis. They've bought up insane catalogs. I think they did Bob Dylan, Shakira, like 
crazy huge catalogs and they have all of this leverage now. So they're doing a couple different things. They are current, currently lobbying the UK parliament to increase the value of publishing through something called remuneration. If you Google that, you can see some of their arguments for why publishing should be valued. Right now, I believe in streaming specifically, it's worth only about 20% what the sound recording royalties are worth. So mm. definitely less. So they're pushing there to try and increase the value of publishing at, on the whole. Mm. Um, so if they buy up the majority of the market and then they get legislation to double their percentage of importance, then suddenly their, their, <laughs> their account doubled in value. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Yep. So that's one of the things they're doing. Another thing that they are doing is pushing these organizations to improve their data management. And they've also improved their data management for their own catalog. And it increased revenue for them by something like 40% mm. just by having more complete metadata. So the data pieces of the music publishing industry really overlaps with the tech industry. And so we've had all these kind of mm. archaic performing rights organizations or collection management societies that some of them still run on just paper. Like you have to mail them <laughs> your, your catalog. Ain't that painful? Ain't that painful? Uh, mm -hmm. The last time I licked the stamp, I just go, eh, eh, where's my horse? Do I got to yeah. go to the general <laughs> store? And, yeah. yeah, they're really ripe for innovation. Some of these larger players in the financial and like tech, tech technology spaces can come in and really improve these systems in a way that's going to lead to more accountability, more transparency, and ultimately more revenue landing in the right hands. So how did you feel before. about some of these artists that you heard got their catalog bought by hypnosis? I know Bob Dylan caught all sorts of flack for being this hippie spokesperson writing anthems against giant corporations. And then he accepts the payola. What's what may some people may look at as payola from the big guys to now own his music and theoretically do whatever they want with it. Did you have an emotional attachment to any of that? Do you find it positive or negative in the big scheme of the industry? So to me, hypnosis is a sort of outside player, right? There's like Sony, Universal, maybe like Domino Publishing, but all of the organizations that are under the NMPA or the National Music Publishers Association, the big majors, they've controlled music publishing for so long and to me they have a conflict in, of interest because they also have labels mm. so they also own sound recordings to them it doesn't matter so much that publishing isn't as valued as sound recordings are because they're making the money either way mm. so with hope hypnosis as this outside player i really think that they could be a big catalyst for change and that it would ultimately improve publishing for everybody. Even though Bob Dylan sold his catalog, I saw that and was like, good for him. He's gonna get to live a life of luxury and leave behind an amazing estate for his family. That that money's not gonna disappear. I guess maybe he could blow, what was it, like a hundred million dollars if he really wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what's got to do, I, I don't like telling people how to spend their money, but I do think that there is an inherent good way to spend it. And I think there's only so much wealth that one human being can really even without turning evil can even spend you're living in a camper and you're not too far off from me looking at tiny homes sustainability how can i be good to planet earth i'm assuming a lot in this conversation but people are attracted to that lifestyle usually because of that so there is some inherent ethics and some weird feelings i got seeing yeah. some of these catalogs get, get sold but i try to assume that there was a boardroom meeting where he was shown the end game that mm -hmm. you've seen where hey you're gonna be the poster boy for getting a bunch of hippies to sell their music to us but 10 years from now everybody's gonna be making double on publishing because it is inherently important and it has the opportunity to topple the monopoly of the current music industry if that's the story that he was sold 
cool. And, and it sounds like that's the story that you've got your fingers crossed for as well. Yeah, that's what I'm hoping. This is through my own observation or what I've seen come out. So I don't know that hypnosis has a formal statement on any of it, but I would mm. hope that's the direction that they're going in. I do see that there could be a lot of positive change happening. And it really aligns too with our company's values. So the noise came from some of the co-founders were bidding the U.S. government to become what is now the MLC. Okay. Or the Mechanical Licensing Collective. And for those of you that don't know, I'll talk about the third kind of royalty, which is mechanical royalties. And they are paid every single time a composition is duplicated. So in the same way that Spotify and Apple Music owe DistroKid artist royalties, they owe songwriters mechanical royalties. Mm. The catch here is that prior to the MLC, you could not collect your mechanical royalties unless you had a publishing entity. As soon as you write a song, you are your own publisher. If you put out your own sound recording, you are your own label. But a lot of people don't take the step to formalize that. And make an LLC? You don't necessarily have to make an LLC, but like a DBA hmm. is good. And you have to register it with a PRO. You have to register a publishing entity with them. And that publisher then gets a, their own IPI number, their own unique identifying number. But now with the MLC, as an independent songwriter, you can sign up with them and get most of your mechanical royalties. And is um, that any different than, are the rates different than signing up with any typical publisher? Are they, how do they compare? Yeah, so the MLC is more like ASCAP or BMI. Hmm. So they're one of three organizations in the U.S. that pay mechanical royalties, or I guess technically four, because YouTube does as well. Oh. And you still have to sign up with all of them to get all of your mechanical royalties, but now you can get most. So basically in, in 2018, there was something called the Music Modernization Act that was passed into law. That is what created the MLC because there was this black box of royalties, the elusive black box that Nobody really knew how much was there, but they knew that Spotify and Apple Music and all of these huge digital service providers owed money. They just didn't know how to pay it or who to pay it to. It wasn't connected with anybody, so they're hanging on to it. So the MLC was created to collect that money and then distribute it to the independent songwriters that it's owed to. And it ended up being half a billion dollars Woof. with a B. Mm -hmm. Which probably means the real amount was an actual billion dollars or three billion dollars. That sounds like yeah. the ultimate money laundering location. <laughs> oh, yeah. we got a billion dollars tied up in royalties in this black box, but we don't really have anyone to report them to. And we don't really have any way to track exactly how much we have. Yeah. Wow. That's an yeah, easy way for these cats to just move some money around, hide it, launder it, bring it, leak it back out. And that seems to be a story that I hear time and time again. I had David Adler, our entertainment lawyer on earlier today, recording a mic podcast. And we were talking about a lot of these people suing their labels. And it seems to me like nine times out of 10, it's they're suing to get their money out of that black box because they just said, oh, we don't know how much it is, how much you're making. Is that the case? Is that what people are usually trying to retain when they sue their label or sue? Can you walk me through that? Yeah, absolutely. A lot of labels also have publishing companies. And so they might own both publishing and sound recording mm -hmm. of an artist. I will say that in my experience, it's best to hire somebody who specializes in a particular facet of the industry. So for me personally, I would recommend to my artists to do go to a label, to be your label and manage your sound recordings, go to a publisher, to be a publisher and do publishing because again, a, publishing is just really complex. And if mm -hmm. labels are focused on marketing the sound recording and supporting the artists that way, tour support, all of those kinds of things, artist development, Mm -hmm. It doesn't leave a lot of room for music publishing. So I think it's been a sort of gap in services, especially with indie labels. So again, like Universal, Sony, even those huge companies 
have errors in how their publishing is registered all the time. And we see that. We did a marshmallow song that we're administering and it had been in conflict for six years because somebody, wow. some, probably some poor intern at Sony or Universal misregistered mm -hmm. the percentage points. Oh, you know, man. they were like one off and they don't distribute any money unless it's reconciled, unless it all sums up to a hundred. So it, it just, it happens all the time. And so people will audit their labels because they're like, I haven't seen any publishing payments. Where is this money? Right. And if you can afford it and you think that there's some money there, definitely audit your label. I would highly recommend that. Absolutely. And in the classic way of having true control over your own career, your own business, Having people in working in silos is not a bad idea because if you have everybody, if you have three hooks in you from the label, they're doing your publishing, they're on this side of the company, they're on that side, they're in cahoots with your booking agent, they're in cahoots with your manager, suddenly every decision that you want to make is already made for you. And mm -hmm. so it's really easy to replace your publisher more so than replacing your entire record label. <laughs> so right. I, even if you go into a, a record deal, I'm not anti-record deal. I'm just anti-musicians getting screwed over. So mm -hmm. if a record deal is good, it theoretically doesn't even have to include your publishing. You could use right. an outside source for that, negotiate your deal according to what gaps in your business you have. You might have a blind spot in booking and tour management, like you said, and artist development. Use them for that, but write your negotiation to where you can use outside trusted publishers that you can control and only have your best interest in heart, not the mm -hmm. label's best interest at heart. Because the, yeah. the label's best interest at heart are just going to be dollar signs. Nothing to do with creative control, integrity, or what types of products this is being placed in. They have mm -hmm. a little bit of image management built in, but you're right. Compartmentalizing your services to people who specialize in those is to be honest how artist collective has built up to the point that it is now we just go i'm not the expert in that but i know somebody that is i'm gonna call them so right. i i totally agree with that now one thing that i i can't quite wrap my head around and i'm starting to do the math and i'm starting to see where hypnosis feels like they're creating this dragon's horde of music assets and then they're just gonna make the whole each asset worth 20, 30% more, but I still don't quite understand how these catalogs are worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Like where is that value and how are they valuing these catalogs out at such an exorbitant amount of money? Yeah, I, that's a great question. Something I don't know, you know? I don't know that I have the answer for you. The catalogs are earning good revenue every year. So the 16X multiple means that if the catalog earns continues to earn as much as it is now, they will make their money back in 16 years, something like that. And if they're angling to increase the value of these catalogs, they will likely make their money back even quicker, or they'll be able to then resell it for even a higher valuation because they're mm -hmm. bringing in more money. So that's interesting too, because uh, I foresee a day, and this mm -hmm. maybe is just coming from, you're a bassist, so you already know. There's only six strings on my guitar, right? Mm -hmm. As soon as I start to sit down and write a song, there's a moment in almost every song creation where I'm singing a riff and then I start singing another song that sounds real similar and I go, shit, ah, this is basically Daughters by John Mayer. <laughs> and I keep seeing some of the old school cats like the Tom Petty's of the world. Mm -hmm. He sees a song come out by Sam Smith, Stay With Me, and it's an identical chord and melody progression to a song that has no similar atmosphere or instrumentation on it at all, but he wins for millions of dollars. So my, my guess for why hypnosis is buying these catalogs is that there will only be certain archetypal. So in this mountain mound of songs that sound, stay with me, Tom Petty is now the leader king of that mountain. He sued, he won. So now the archetype of that melody is his song, which I think was American Girl. I think it was American Girl that sounded like Stay With Me. And I can pull up exactly how much he won. Tom Petty sues Sam Smith. I'm acting as my own Jamie today. He says no hard feelings and the lawsuit was settled out of court. No hard feelings. 
So are you familiar with that story or stories like that? I've heard of some of those. It, it's interesting because it does change copyright law in the States. It, it impacts what's defined as a composition or the copyright, right? Because originally it's just lyrics and melody. And now we're getting into what, it, what constitutes a melody. Yeah. You know, in these guitar riffs and these bass riffs in right. the, well, wherever I, else, the chord structures, where does that lie? My thought process is this. So now because he won, Sam Smith's song is now basically in the chain underneath his song. Mm -hmm. So my thought process is that for every categorical type of arrangement, there's going to be one King song and one King owner of that type of arrangement with hundreds beneath it, mm -hmm. because we're running out of notes. We're running out of compositions. So I almost look at something like, and it was Tom Petty's, I won't back down. Mm -hmm. And the chorus is identical. The instrumentation is almost identical. And he ends up winning uh, the case. And I think it was 19 million. I can't find exactly what the figure was now. But my thought is this. If Hypnosis buys that Tom Petty track, then that means that they can win against a hundred other songs that sound stay with me. Mm -hmm. So suddenly everybody has to kiss Tom Petty's ring to use that one, four, five. Mm -hmm. And Tom Petty's estate is getting the money for every one, four, five of that similar BPM for the rest of time. Am I sounding like a conspiracy theorist or is this kind of the direction we're headed? I would like to take a more optimistic view and say that Tom Petty's estate will have to sue every time and mm -hmm. that it's unlikely that they will sue unless it's a song, Stay With Me, where it reaches the echelons of streaming numbers and revenue where there's enough pie to take from yeah yeah i um, wonder if that's why hypnosis is doing that that's why i was trying to bring that up it could be but also i think that hypnosis in some catalogs has also purchased done like a full buyout another piece of publishing that's also relevant to independent artists is when you sign up with bmi or ascap or pro there's something called a writer's share and then there's a publisher share and it's split 50 50 the writer's share is almost an inalienable right. Mm. So if you sell 100% of your publishing, you're just selling the half that is publishing. You still have your writer's share. So for hypnosis to buy out the writer's share so that really these artists are earning no royalties on these songs, they don't own any portion of it anymore, is much more expensive significantly more expensive than just buying the publishing all right I, so I, that could be a part too of why the value is so high and with them being based in the uk too i think that the international law and suing for copyright might get a little complicated so i'm not sure i would hope that's not their goal <laughs> i would I, hope yeah i because i i think of online real yeah, I think of it almost as it's there's so many tangents we could go off on it mm -hmm. with. But yeah, there there there's certain legendary classics that you start to make anything that feels like My Girl by the Temptations. It's very self-evident. Right. And and so My Girl is more likely to win every uh, case ever than any the second song. It sounds like My Girl because it's got this legendary status The Okay, so now I want to pivot away from that because I could fall down that rabbit hole and I definitely do not want to do that. And I want to focus on the songwriting aspect. Yeah. Now, a lot of our clients and artists that come to us, I'm a live performer, but their personality type may not suit the stage, but they love being behind the scenes. And oftentimes during our conversations of what is your ideal workday look like? If you imagine in your mind's eye what your ideal day is, how much of that is sitting in a chase lounge, smoking a cigar, writing music? Some people will tell us, I want to be a songwriter. I want to be recognized as a songwriter. And I want to be found in this, in some hopeful, hoping that there's some catalog of songwriters for them to be found within. So as an artist is trying to wave the flag up, I'm a songwriter. I want to become professional. What are the first steps and first platforms and places that they should exist in and invest in? Yeah, 
I would definitely say that the PROs do have some pretty good songwriting community. I know BMI in particular does a lot of songwriting showcases and events. They will even help to introduce you to other songwriters and all those kinds of things. I think it's a place that's oftentimes overlooked. Mm. Like you don't really think of these kind of like old dusty PROs that deal with numbers and money as being a place to meet other songwriters. But I would definitely encourage people to look up their local offices for their PROs, to try and build relationships with your representatives there Mm. and to see what kind of events they have going on, especially now that there will be more in-person events. They can definitely be very helpful. But other than that, there are tons of songwriting showcases and a lot of different communities that you can find around that. And collaborating with other artists is going to be a really great way to start. I will say that it is incredibly challenging to write a whole song and then pitch it to an artist. Mm. I feel like even if you know that artist and have a relationship and it isn't a completely cold contact, it's really hard for them to get emotionally invested in something that they weren't involved in at all or might not be a part of their story so especially when you're starting out having those co-writing sessions with other artists can be a really great way to start building a catalog for yourself love that and luckily you answered one of the ways that we solved that problem for one of the clients because they were in a position where there was an element of discovery about the artist's story that was relevant to the producer's branding. So like he goes by the name Observe and he wants to showcase other people's stories. But in order to showcase someone's story, you first got to hear it. You got to take the time to really get to know the story, the, the, the type of music that they do, the type of lyrics that they're going to write and what they should be writing because the best stuff is going to be closer to their core values and who they are at the heart of themselves. So we instilled basically so you're gonna do the splits like xyz but because you're a songwriting consultant you can charge a project fee that's outside Mm -hmm. of all of this so this word consultant i'm a consultant as well it sounds like you do some consulting Mm -hmm. uh on the side it enables people to redefine where these traditional formats start and stop you, you make an agreement on a sheet of paper. I'm going to get you from point A to point B for X amount of dollars. It's not related to how our splits are set up. Our splits are set up like this regardless, but this can be a way to have maybe a seasoned artist work with a completely newbie artist that they're not bringing the same level of talent or shared equity or ability to promote and things like that. So you can get paid for your time as a consultant and then quote unquote, take the gamble on the points and things on the side. That sounds like a kind of a, a sweet spot, financially uh, profitable compromise. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I will say to you, like a second place to look for building up your catalog as you start to build up a catalog is to reach out to publishers, like publishers are to songwriters, what labels are to artists. For us as a publishing administration company, we don't buy or own or do advances for catalogs. We take a commission on what we collect for you, but we also offer creative services. So we can help set up sessions with other people in our catalog or people outside of the catalog, help pitch for sync, help pitch for other artists and have that kind of support and team around you as you get further in your career as a songwriter. Absolutely. And I'm actually looking at the noise on the website right now. And I saw Sumerian Records. You really did. Yeah, that's back in the metal days. I used to see that name all over the place. Isn't that primarily a metal label? It was like full circle for me when I was maybe like 12 or 13 and playing in these hardcore bands. Sumerian Records was like on our list of labels that we would love to be a part of someday. And so to now at this current place in my career, do administration for them and their catalog, the Smashing Pumpkins and Copy and Animals as Leaders and After the Burial and all of these like very cool metal bands that were my heroes at one point in my life is definitely, yeah, a very cathartic, like full circle moment for me. Was that one of the moments where you're like, wow, I'm really doing this. Like, yeah, I made it. Like, was that kind of <laughs> one of those breakthrough moments? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, very cool. 
Yeah, I remember early on in my career really looking at these labels and looking at the buildings as like the necessary gatekeepers. I always talk about how the the circular building of Capitol Records in LA, I would just look mm -hmm. at it like Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory. That's mm -hmm. where the magic happens. That's where I need to get in. Those are the people that are going to change my life, blah, blah, blah. But I realized that as soon as you walk in and that you get the stamp of approval, you're really handcuffed to their ideology of you and the caricature that they want to make of you. So having organizations that focus on the independence of the world, it's a harder because you aren't backed by this big evil corporate money and usually not backed by as many government subsidies either. So it's harder to fight for the little guy. And the profit margins are usually smaller because you're not dealing with multi-million dollar accounts typically. Now an acquisition like Sumerian, that could have some, some extra gumption to it, some extra profitability to it. But why is it so important that the noise focuses on independent songwriters rather than affiliated? Yeah, there is a sort of limit to the amount of time that the MLC or any of these organizations hold on to royalties. And after that limit, which is typically like three to five years, they distribute it based on market share. Mm. So for me, my mission and our company mission is to connect as many independent songwriters with their royalties as possible. We have a really low sign-up fee. It's 20 bucks to sign up with the noise. We do administration and we do direct collections. So we register your royalties or we register your catalog directly with all of the PROs and CMOs in all of the territories around the world. Mm collect them for you so you get them quicker you oftentimes get better rates just because of the roundabout way that they they do international collections at the PROs themselves is a little quirky but yeah I would much rather have an independent artist make $50 than have that $50 be paid to Universal or Sony based on market share and it, all of that adds up too so that's like yeah. their fail safe. It's, yeah. oh, you didn't claim it. It goes to the rich folks again. <laughs> exactly. Then, yeah. yeah, somebody's got somebody's to gotta fish that money out of the water for the indie guys. So thank you for doing that. So walk me through, let's say I'm three albums deep and I'm listening to this conversation. I'm getting a little uneasy going, I got money to be made out there, apparently. How do they get involved with you and what are the first steps? Yeah, if you go to the NOIS.org, you can register with us there. Um, like I mentioned earlier in this talk, you absolutely have to register with your local PRO to get your IPI number that is required. So you have to do that first and then you can sign up with us. And when you register your songs with us, it'll ask you for some information like the song title, the artist name, the splits for the song. If you do have your own publishing entity, you can still sign up with us and we will directly register your works around the world and continue collecting on your behalf. And if you do not have a publishing entity, basically you can allow us to act as your publisher on your behalf so that you're still collecting that section of your royalties, that portion of your royalties. Yeah, and you go in, you register your songs and then it takes a couple months to start seeing the money come in but you'll start seeing all your royalties show up in there that's beautiful i think i'm gonna have to get signed up myself and i've got some cats that are starting to have their songs synced in in places like facebook watch series videos uh youtube series and this the market share of where this money can be coming from seems to only getting the market's getting wider and bigger and obviously some huge hedge fund type companies like hypnosis has taken notice in buying up as much real estate. I know Brazil was buying stuff up. There were some shell companies in the Middle East that were buying some entertainment assets up. So there is this gold rush right now for people to buy uh, in bulk. And so right now everybody needs to secure and batten down the hatches, claim your money before the big money takes it. And I thank you so much for explaining the importance of claiming these on a certain timetable, because I can see that's almost the industry's failsafe to funnel the money back to the corporations. Yeah. And so every artist that signs up with you, that's less money in the corporate 
bank account. And that makes me feel a lot better too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What's your Instagram handle? And outside of the NOIS.org, where can people personally connect with you if they liked what you were saying and they want to endorse you on LinkedIn? Do you do that sort of thing? Uh, walk me through how people can connect with you personally. Yeah, of course. So my personal Instagram handle is low and low. So low end. Yeah, the base, <laughs> you'll see a lot of base and, and travel content there. I actually just started working with Victor Wooten and Steve Bailey on their base vaults community. So wow. if you are a bassist and you're interested in that, check it out, the base vaults. But that's my personal one. Instagram's probably one of the best places to connect with me, but LinkedIn's fine too. You can find me at Lauren Trahan on there. And then of course, The Noise has all of our own social media accounts, which are all the NOIS org. Perfect. So you can find us there. Yeah. Thank you so much. You were a wealth of knowledge and I do foresee us doing this around too, because there were some, I'm not going to lie. There were some of these abbreviations I didn't even know. So I'm going to do a little more research and be prepped for round two, but thank you so much for gifting our listeners with so much knowledge and uh, for doing what you do and fighting for the little guy. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. You have a great day and safe travels. Thanks. Talk to you soon. Bye.